Even I do it sometimes. And that song we just sang, Amazing Grace, Like a Flood, Your Mercy Reigns. Uh, that's certainly an appropriate line for this weekend. We hope all of you have stayed above water and will be praying for all of you and praying for our area and praying for really the whole state uh, over the next few days as rivers rise and creeks rise and basements flood. Uh, hopefully none of you will be afflicted by that. Now, Dr. E.V. Rue was a renowned scholar of classical literature, and one of his most impressive accomplishments was completing a Greek-to-English translation of the works of Homer, Homer the poet, not Homer Simpson. At that point, Rue was some 60 years old, and it was well known that he did not believe in God. But then his publisher asked him to do another translation, this time of the Gospels. And the scholar's son was recorded as saying, when he started the project, it will be interesting to see what Father will make of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of Father. One year later, the lifelong unbelieving scholar repented of his sin and believed the Gospel that he had been translating. Simply opening one of the four Gospels and reading about Jesus can be utterly life-changing. That's true for those who do not believe when they first start reading, like that scholar. But it can also be life-changing for those who already do believe, and yet they keep coming back to the Gospels over and over and over again. It seems that every single time you read it, it can change you. The story we read in the four Gospels has the power to transform the hearts and minds of sinners, bringing them from death to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the story also has the power to strengthen, encourage, mature, and challenge those who already believe it, no matter how many times we open it. So between now and Easter, we're going to take an extended look at the Gospel of Mark. And while each of the four Gospels is unique in its own way, ultimately there's one big question that all four of them are written to answer. And that question is, who is Jesus? As we'll see this morning in chapter 1, Mark begins to answer that question right from the get-go. He does it at a breakneck pace with an incredible sense of urgency. Because how you respond to that question who is Jesus, carries eternal consequences. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Darn it, I was hoping the screen wasn't going to work, and then I could say, see, now you actually have to open your printed Bibles. But of course it works now. I guess you can look at the screen too, or you can open your Bible. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. But before we do any reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you for the people who are here, new faces, old faces. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who are not here. Uh, Traveling, illness, all kinds of things uh, are affecting our church on any given week. And so we pray for those who aren't here. Uh, I ask that you would watch over them. And thank you, Father, as Zach said earlier in the service, that We can worship you even when all of the technology isn't working the right way, Uh, whether we have a screen or not, whether we have colorful backgrounds behind the words or not, we can worship you. Uh, And so, Father, I pray that you would remind us that uh, 
ultimately those things might be helpful. Uh, they might be a good touch here and there. Um, but ultimately, every Sunday we come together. You're the reason we come together. Uh, not the technology, not the, not the show, not the effects. Uh, Father, we come here to worship you. And Father, we pray for this world. Uh, again, it's been a little bit of a chaotic week, it seems, uh, if you turn on the news, uh, whether it's uh, natural disasters in Australia or Puerto Rico or flooding here in Indiana, uh, whether it is geopolitical conflict and military conflict. Uh, it seems like it's been a little bit of an up and down week. Uh, and so, Father, we ask you to watch over us. Uh, help us to trust you even when things appear to be unstable and, and insecure. Uh, Father, help us to trust your your power and your sovereignty that regardless of what's happening in the world, you are still on your throne. And thank you for this joy and this privilege to read the gospel, uh, whether we've read it before or whether it's the first time we've really cracked it open and tried to read it from beginning to end. Uh, I pray that you would help this time, these next few months of reading the gospel of Mark, uh, bear fruit in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, uh, but ultimately also bring glory to you. Thank you for the story of Jesus uh, that brings us together. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we begin reading our text, what exactly is it that we're reading? Well, the word gospel means good news. And that word gospel was used frequently in the ancient world. It could be used to refer to the birth of a royal baby. It could be used to refer to a military victory. It could be used to refer to a political triumph. All of these events could be described as gospel, good news. But Mark doesn't just give us a gospel. He doesn't just give us some gospel. He gives us the gospel. As he says in verse 1, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those other supposed bits of good news, good news about worldly thrones and worldly battles and worldly politics, all pale in comparison to the true good news of Jesus Christ. So a Christian named Mark felt the need, better yet, was inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write down this good news, this story about Jesus. The Mark who's writing this gospel is probably the man known as John Mark in other places in the New Testament. Mark was a close associate of Peter, Peter being one of Jesus's closest apostles, the main figurehead of the early church after Jesus's death, resurrection and ascension. The book of Acts tells us that Mark's mother was a believer in Jesus as well and let Christians meet in an upper room in her house. So Mark was not one of Jesus's original 12 apostles, but he was very close to them and he's probably getting his information from them. And finally, Mark's writing is likely intended for a group of Christians under great stress. He may have been writing to Christians in Rome, suffering under the terror of the notorious Roman emperor Nero. These Christians are undergoing great persecution, and their future is uncertain, to put it lightly. So Mark seeks to encourage them. 
And as he, as he determines how to best do this, he doesn't give these Christians strategies or suggestions or feel-good sentiments like a Hallmark card. As Mark seeks to encourage these believers, he gives them the gospel, the good news, the story of Jesus. So starting in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we read, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, maybe the keto diet. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So as we said a moment ago, Mark wastes zero time answering the question that all four Gospels were written to answer. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is God's Son. But Mark doesn't include the birth story of Jesus from Matthew and Luke, The birth story that we just read at Christmas. Why not? Perhaps the Christians he's writing to already knew it. And if you were here in December, we know it as well. But if you weren't, here's a quick reminder. Jesus was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, fully God and fully man. From there, Mark's record of John the Baptist's ministry is short and sweet. He looks like a prophet, sounds like a prophet, and smells like a prophet. He's calling people to repentance and baptizing them for forgiveness of their sins. And John insists that he is not the main event. He's just the messenger before the main event arrives. Mark's account has much in common with the other Gospels. But Mark includes nothing about John the Baptist picking fights with the religious leaders, the way Matthew and Luke did. The part where John calls them a brood of vipers. The part where he compares them to trees about to be chopped down with an axe. None of it's there. Why not? Well, Mark seems to be focusing on the basics. Focusing on what you need to know. John is the messenger sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And from there, Mark immediately turns to Jesus' baptism, and once again, he sticks to the basics. 
Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized. And when Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him and God announces that Jesus is his son. So yet again, Mark doesn't include all the details that Matthew and Luke do. There's no mention of John's reluctance to baptize Jesus. There's no mention of Jesus saying that he must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Why not? Well, again, Mark is focused on the biggest things you need to know from Jesus's baptism. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he is God's son. And finally, we see Jesus tempted. And once again, Mark cuts to the chase. He mentions that the Holy Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness. It wasn't just a coincidence. He identifies Satan as the tempter. But Mark says nothing about the parts of the story that we may know so well. There's nothing about turning stones into bread. Nothing about Jesus standing on top of the temple. There's nothing about Jesus and Satan getting into a sick scripture memorization battle. Why not? Well, again, Mark seems content to just get the main points across. Jesus was tempted, but Jesus did not sin. So of all four Gospels, Mark is by far the shortest. And in just the first 13 verses, you're already starting to see why. In these verses alone, just 13 of them, Mark crams in the introduction to his gospel, John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus' baptism, and Jesus' temptation. Now, don't get me wrong. The details in Matthew and Luke are important. By all means, you should read them. They're part of Scripture as well. But clearly, Mark, for some reason in his gospel, is in a little bit of a hurry. He's giving us a rapid-fire account of who Jesus is. Mark is writing with a great sense of urgency. And that continues in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately Jesus called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. 
He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, you're noticing that word a lot, immediately. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news So that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. So in verses 14 through 45, Jesus preaches his first sermon, calls his first disciples, teaches a few Bible studies, casts out some demons, heals many, and cleanses a leper. And also makes a point to stop for a few minutes of private prayer. And it's amazing to think that much of verses 14 through 45 occurs within a single day. It's got to be pretty exhausting to be Jesus. And in just a few minutes of reading, Mark has already given you a great deal to work with when it comes to answering that big question. Who is Jesus? In these verses alone, you already have astonishing examples of Jesus's power. He has authority over unclean spirits, illness, and sin. He calls people to follow him and they drop everything, their families, their work, and they listen. He commands the demons and they obey him. He grabs a sick woman's hand and her fever disappears in the blink of an eye. He touches a leper and rather than Jesus being tainted, the leper is cleansed. So who is Jesus? Well, Mark has already given us answers. He's the Christ, the Son of God. He's the one the prophets looked forward to. The one who's filled with the Holy Spirit. The one with whom God is well pleased in a world full of sin. He's the one man who was tempted by Satan but didn't fall. Unlike Adam 
unlike all who came after Adam, unlike you and unlike me. He's the caller of disciples, the victor over the demons, the healer of the sick, and the cleanser of the unclean. Jesus is a teacher. He's a preacher. He's a prayer. And much of it is in a single 24-hour span. These miracles, these exercises of uncommon divine authority are simply all in a day's work for Jesus. And that's why Mark can write from the very beginning of his book, without an ounce of hesitation, that Jesus is not just a gospel. He's not just some gospel. He is the gospel. He is the good news. And you know, sometimes that's what we Christians need to hear most. We mentioned earlier that the first readers of Mark's gospel were likely suffering Christians in Rome, enduring significant persecution from the tyrant Nero. Now, these people already believed in Jesus. They'd heard the gospel. They'd repented of their sin. They had bought in. But maybe their injustices, their trials, their hardships were slowly starting to wear them thin. And so in Mark's estimation, as he looks for ways to encourage his brothers and sisters, he determines that the best thing he can do for them is give them the written story of Jesus. Give them the gospel, even if they've already heard it. Give them something they can be consistently reminded of. Something they can come back to again and again and again. Something that nobody, not even the emperor of Rome, can take away from them. Something that can keep them going through their pain. Because no matter what happens to them next, no matter what cruel and unusual punishment Nero comes up with, or how uncertain, how unstable, and even dangerous their lives may be, the gospel is the same. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's who Mark has given them. Likewise, when we're feeling worn down, when we feel like we can't keep going, when, as we read a few weeks ago in the book of Hebrews, we have need of endurance, one of the best things we can do is simply turn to Jesus. Simply be reminded of the gospel. And by God's grace, we have four inspired accounts of Jesus, four gospels readily accessible to us. We have the story of Jesus that we can pick up and read more easily than just about any other people in history. And in just one chapter of this gospel, Mark has already reminded us that no matter what we're facing, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He overcame temptation when we fail. He's called us to be his disciples. He has power and authority over demons, illness, and sin. So when everything else around you is in flux, when it seems like every bit of ground you try to stand on falls out from under you, remember the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The power of this gospel and the truth of this gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because Jesus is the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. But before we close, what's the deal with Mark's sense of urgency? Why does he move through the story so quickly, leaving out all those details Matthew and Luke thought to be so important? Why does Mark use the word immediately nine times in chapter one alone and 33 times in the rest of the book? Why does Mark move from one story to the next, hardly giving you any time to even catch your breath? Well, look at Mark chapter one, verse 15, a verse we read a few minutes ago. Jesus preached, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark's not the only one here with a sense of urgency. In his first sermon, Jesus preaches with a sense of urgency as well. Maybe the sense of urgency in Mark chapter 1 stuck out to me more than usual this week because Olivia and I experienced a death in the family. Olivia's great-grandmother, Rosemary, also known as Boots, passed away Tuesday morning. Boots was 95 years old, and thankfully she had repented of her sin and believed in the gospel. And I'll be officiating her funeral tomorrow. And as you may have experienced before, any time you attend a funeral, when you're confronted with death, whether it's someone young or someone old, you're forced to think of eternal things more than you typically do, maybe even more than you would like to do. Funerals make you think about how fleeting life really is. Olivia's great-grandmother had 95 years to repent and believe in the gospel. But there's no guarantee that you and I will have that long. Mark wrote his gospel with a sense of urgency. And Jesus preached with a sense of urgency. Why is that? Well, because everything Jesus said is true. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Not only is life fleeting, we can die at any moment, but Jesus has promised to come again as king and judge, and we don't know when that will be. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus teaches his disciples that the unknown timing of his second coming is not an excuse to fall asleep, be lazy, pursue sin, or make poor use of the time that we've been given. The unknown timing of Jesus' second coming or our death, whichever might come first, ought to motivate us to think eternally, to pursue things of eternal value, to live with a sense of intentionality and even a sense of urgency. It's been some 2,000 years since Jesus first preached that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. But make no mistake, the message is just as true and just as urgent now As it was back then. It could be another 2,000 years before Jesus returns. Or it could be tomorrow. You could make it to 95 the way Olivia's great-grandmother did. Or you might not make it out of this room. So repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. And to use one of Mark's favorite words, do it immediately. So Mark has given us a thorough introduction of who Jesus is. He's covered a lot of ground in just one chapter. 
But still, as the story continues, we will get more clarity on who Jesus is and what he came to do. And spoiler alert, it's not just to preach a few sermons, teach a few Bible studies, take some fishermen on an adventure, cast out some demons, heal a few sick people, and give some lepers a new lease on life. He did those things, but that's not all he came to do. Jesus came to die on a cross for our sins, rise from the dead, and ascend to God's right hand. And one day he will come again in power and glory. And when that day comes, the kingdom of God won't just be something that a scholar translates. It won't just be something that theologians debate. It won't just be something that churchgoers look forward to and hope. The kingdom of God will stand before our very eyes in all its fullness. And no matter when that day comes, whether you're alive to see Christ's return or if you die before it happens, either way, one day we will stand before God and will be judged on how we answer the question that Mark wrote his gospel to address. Who is Jesus? So if you don't know the answer to that question, I pray that you would look into it immediately. I pray that you would read this gospel with us. And that you would repent of your sin and believe in it. And if you already repent of your sin and believe this gospel, I would encourage you to stand firm in it. Because no matter what you face, nothing changes the truth and the power of this good news. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus is the one in charge of it. So it is vitally important, eternally important, urgently important that you know who he is and what he has done. That's what Mark has begun to teach us today, and that's what he'll continue to teach us in the months ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for the good news that you've given us. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word, that this gospel is not something that you kept quiet. It's not something that you kept secret, but you've given it to us in four different versions of the same story. Thank you that we have this good news, that you've given, us to, given it to us in order that we might repent of our sin and believe in it. And so, Father, I pray that those of us in this room if we have believed in it, that we would stand firm in it, no matter what it is that we're facing, no matter the hardships that might come. The good news is still the good news, no matter how our circumstances might change. And Father, for those who have not believed in it, I pray that by the power of your spirit, by the power of your word, that they would believe, that they would repent, and that they would know who you are, who your son Jesus is. And Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for not just giving us the story to read, but actually living out the story. Every word of it is true. You really are who it says you are. You really did what it says you did. And so, Lord, you are our hope. You are our confidence. You are our assurance in a world of shifting sands, in a world where death can strike at any moment. We place our confidence, our hope, and our future in your hands. 
Again, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name.